Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by SchoolofLaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast. Rick Roberts here with a very in-depth, informative, insightful, and inspiring interview with Tommy Drake. I've never met Tommy in person. However, many years ago, back when AOL was the basically the only way to get online, it looked easy to get online. I was on there and bumped into him in these uh, stand-up comedy forums. I think it was called Alt.Comedy, something like that in AOL. Anyway, he uh, we talk about that, but we also talk about how he prepares for shows specifically his dry bar comedy special is releasing soon and he goes in depth talking about not only how he prepares for that but how he prepared you know four months out starting to get ready for that and uh, lots of good ideas in there also talks about his days on the cruise ship some techniques he picked up there to develop more material and ways to organize material i mean just top to bottom you're going to enjoy this episode and uh, get a lot out of it. I do want to say thanks really quickly to our Patreon supporters. I'm going to go with two of them this time around. Uh, Ray Price and Bo Schuster. They've both been supporting the podcast through Patreon since the Patreon support was made available. And I just wanted to say a special thanks to those two for being there from the start. And also, uh, Bo, our friend, is uh, recovering from back surgery. So, Bo, if you're listening to this, uh, get well soon. Looks like the surgery went well. You've got some inflammation, perhaps, and some uh, physical therapy ahead of you. But a holler if we can help you out, do anything for you. And again, uh, thanks for your support over the years. All right, we're going to get right into this episode right now with Tommy Drake. I love what you're doing, and I have I have two issues uh, that I was concerned about. First one <laughs> okay. was I might not be a good enough comic to be on this podcast, and then I listened to some other episodes and thought I might not be a good enough Christian to be on this podcast. <laughs> so I'm, I feel like I'm on the edge of both right there for you. But I just wanted to get all that out. Now you can start. <laughs> I'm glad you're I'm glad you're along with us. I'm sure you're more than qualified enough to uh, hand out some advice, which. We'll definitely get into here in a little bit. Uh, I guess I've known about you when AOL had the chat rooms and stuff like that, and there was no f- Facebook yet. And yep, and you had, it was uh, dial-up. It was dial-up. I think it was alt. Was it alt comedy stand-up or was it the yeah. alt road monkeys back then? I think I was on both of those with you. Yeah, I think it was the first one. And the alt comedy stand-up, yeah. And you had to like take your telephone cord and, and get like a 60 footer. So when you're in the condo, you can run it all the way out of the bedroom door down the hall into the kitchen to, to log on. <laughs> yeah, I was on the road and there were actually some markets where I couldn't post my little online journal. I had to save it until we got to the next town. That's how new the Internet was. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? How long ago before yeah. that did you start comedy? How long have you been doing it? I, my first paid gig was in... 1990. Um, and, uh, I went probably on the road full time four or five years after that, but, but I've been doing, I've, I've been doing over 400 performances a year for, for well over 25 years now. So that puts me in the 10,000 show category. That's, that's phenomenal. And a lot of those shows nowadays are on the uh, cruise ships, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But when you, when you first got started, were you in California or were you in Texas? Where were you at that point? Yeah, my, fir- my first open mics were in uh, and around the San Francisco Bay Area when I was a teenager, and it was, uh, and I w- and it was a novelty to, to put up a teenager. So I got a couple of opportunities there. And then I moved to New York uh, out of high school because everybody goes as far away from home as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I spent about, uh, I spent a couple of years just doing three or four sets every night out there because you could do that back then. And now I live in, in Houston. My wife brought me down here um, because she's, she pretty much said, if you're gone all the time, does it matter where we live? <laughs> and uh, I said, no, I guess not. And she, she runs a business here. So what actually ended up being a great move. I had no idea. I had this attitude as a California and New York person that the middle of the country was no place for me to live. And 
I got to Houston. What a, it was a wonderful comedy scene. Got some great opportunities. The uh, the local comics were amazing. The open mic was really strong, and it was a, it's a great place to go on the road from. You know, because the middle of the country had all the uh, all the clubs back then. Really. Yeah, and who who were some of the comics that were around there in Houston at the time? Was it Ralphie May doing stuff or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Ralphie May got to be a got to be a good friend. Um, you know, I just saw him last night. Andy Huggins who is on uh, America's Got Talent, I mm-hmm. think was Andy's thing. But Andy Huggins was around back then and James Pineapple and uh, Scott Kennedy, who used to take a lot of comics out on those USO shows, was was around. But the, la- the last stop was such a hot room that every week, one of your favorite comics on the planet was coming to headline and we all got to open, you know. So I got to work with Mitch Hedberg to David Brenner, literally. Right. You know, everybody, and everybody in between. And who was the uh, lady that was known as Houston's Chocolate Kiss? Um, oh, gosh. Thea Vidal or is yes. it after Thea? Yeah, Thea. Thea. I, Thea. I worked with her a couple of times uh, in odd places, but she was she was uh, full of energy, man. She was. She had her own TV show on ABC. And just two weeks ago, I worked with Thea on a cruise ship. She's still out there. Really? And it's uh, it was wonderful to watch. Yeah, it was really, really fun to watch. Thea's a a special act and the fact that she's still doing it you know you asked me how long i've been doing it and it's it's hard for me to find comics that have been doing it longer than me or have more experience than me right and when i work with somebody like thea it's just really fun to watch and i can really go to school on her yeah that's she in a whole different place yeah oh it's great that's i mean cool. you must have seen her you probably saw her 20 25 years ago yeah it's probably mid-90s imagine how much better she is now i mean she's been doing comedy every night since then that's insane that's great so houston was a a good stop for you after moving around but let's talk about those san francisco days for a minute because there must have been some pretty cool comics on the scene there too because that really oh of course i will durst was my hero and he's he still is and he's still out there but people like dana carvey and um you know robin williams you'd see all the time and uh kevin pollack was uh, wonderful, uh, you know, and it was sort of at, at the end of Franklin Ajaye and and people like that that are just legendary California comics, and and they were also very in San Francisco, very California. So it was a neat thing to see. It's something that you don't see when those comic comics like that go on the road. They don't do all the ultra hip, <laughs> right? <laughs> super smart stuff. You know, they have to kind of do their their crowd pleasing stuff, you know? Right. Right. When you uh, moved to New York, what was the initial uh, transition like comedy wise? Because San Francisco, like you say, a little bit more laid back can be cerebral. I'd say even maybe a little more creative, but I'd assume New York had to get to things a little bit quicker and had to be a, a little bit more aggressive up front to kind of win the crowd over. Is that about right? Yeah. At the, at the time for sure, it was all about speed. I talked too slow and I had to, start talking faster. So my, and at the time I was so young, I had a a seven minute showcase set and a a three minute version of that set. And to do it properly in New York, my seven minute set became my three minute set. Mm. I did every joke that I would do in seven minutes and three, and that worked for New York. Right. And, Uh, but that's, that's the place I was when I got there too. It was every club would give me somewhere between three and seven minutes when I first showed up you know gotcha and you were like you say pretty young right out of high school you moved out that way yeah 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 i got i got lucky i knew i guess i was nine or ten years old and i wrote in a paper that i wanted to grow up and be a comedian and i knew at a very young age that this is what i was going to be doing and i i was lucky enough that you don't need a lot of money to live back then so i was able to make a living off of few paid sets I was doing every month. Gotcha. Did you have a, a comedy friend in New York that you could bunk up with when you first got there? Or what was that oh, situation? Oh yeah, there were, there were a bunch. My, my real New York buddy, the first guy that really started taking me around was a guy named Robert Falcone. Back then he was Bobby Falcone and Bobby's still out there. He does a lot of character work on TV shows. I see his face all the time, but he really, he really buddied up to me, but I got to, I got to do some shows with uh, David Tell back when he, had hair yeah. <laughs> and uh, chose with uh, yeah, a young Chris Rock when I was living out there, you know, and Chris was already kind of famous from 
being on SNL mm-hmm. when he was a teenager, but he was, uh, it was always fun to watch him because he was really working on the stand up thing. He knew, and he wasn't, you know, he's still very young at that time. He wasn't quite there yet with the stand up, but it was neat to see how hard he was working when he could have probably just went and, and done TV after that. Right. As a, you know, as a comedic actor, but, um, it was fun to watch him work and he was there were a lot of people Lewis Black was doing sets all the time uh when I was there and and that was before Lewis was on TV you know and I just thought he's this New York gem that nobody's ever going to see you know right right yeah he kind of embodies the whole attitude and and expression of New York so when I guess the Daily Show was the first thing I saw him on which must have been the thing that kind of launched him to everybody right yeah, yeah, I think I think it was, and I, I was the guy who was quoted in New York newspapers as saying that uh, I was very happy for John Stewart, but he wasn't. I, I didn't think he would do as well as Craig Kilborn on the Daily Show. <laughs> <laughs> I was that's, way wrong about that. That's funny. That Craig Kilborn thing took a whole weird turn out of left field. Oh, yeah, never got back on track, as far as I can tell. Yeah, that's, and then John Stewart turned the Daily Show into the most reputable news show on TV. I was so proud of them. All the New York comics were so proud of them back then. That's cool. Now, when you were in New York and doing the the sets around town, you know, what was your longest show you could do at that point? Did you have a half hour? You could go out middle on the road with some people? No, I wasn't quite there middling. Back then, you could actually go out on the road and MC. <laughs> you know, that it still existed back then. So every now and then, I'd get an MC weekend. Florida or something at one of those clubs or some of the New York comics would just bring me with them out to Connecticut and I would get to open for them. And on those shows, I would get to do like 10 minutes. Right. You know, so I wasn't quite, I didn't quite have a a real half hour yet at that time. And there were, there were one or two times where I had to do a longer set. And I remember the first time I did a, they said, try to do 25. And I, I did every joke that I had and it was about <laughs> yeah. 22. It was about 22 minutes. And I was really proud of myself, you know? Yeah. Those early road gigs are kind of fun. And you know, if you're ha- hanging out in the car, driving somewhere for a couple hours with one of the old road dogs, I'm sure you pick up some, some tips along the way from those guys. Anything stick out as far as uh, a headliner telling you how to read an audience or work on material or anything like that in the early days? Yeah, one of my favorites is a fellow named Melvin George III. And Melvin George, Melvin George is still out there too. He works in the Northeast. Uh, very distinguished older comic and always does well. And I asked him for advice and he looked me in the face and he said, you have to bomb. Mm-hmm. You have to bomb. Hey, don't just go up. If you're If you're killing every night, you're not learning anything. And don't be afraid of bombing, relish it because know that you're learning and that you're developing. And I thought it was, it was great advice. It really stuck with me. And then 12 years later, I run into him. He's hosting a show that I'm headlining. And I mentioned to him, Melvin, you know, what you said to me in that green room in Connecticut really stuck with me. Do you remember what you said? And he said, yeah, I said, you have to bomb. And he said, Tommy, I've been following your career I didn't mean every show (laughs) and I thought it was the greatest setup 12 year later punchline. That is hilarious comedy, but still to this day, I'm at this stage where I have hours of material, but I try something new on every show that I can at least one new 15 seconds right in the middle. Yeah. And you You know, the one thing that I wrote for that, right? Oh Yeah. Oh, yeah. The one thing that I wrote uh, that sort of got you connected with me recently is about my prep for my dry bar special. And the thing that I put in there that I know a lot of comics disagree with is I did a brand new line Mm -hmm. on that first taping because I wanted that energy to be part of this special that I taped. Yeah. And most comics would say, no, don't do a new line. What are you thinking? Right. But it's part of that. You have to bomb. You have to have. And I'm I'm really good at taking that punch now. So if it falls flat. And it's only in my act, it's 15 seconds at the most. That's right. going to be a little uncomfortable and then right back into another bit, you know? Right. Yeah. It's funny how once, once you know how to, to do a show and to, to run a show and to keep a show tight that people, you know, we both know 
dozens, if not hundreds of headliners who don't alter a word for 10 years or whatever, because if it worked last night, it, it slowly, it's like a tire, slowly that tread comes off and all of a sudden, not only is the comic bald, but the tires bald and the jokes are just sliding all over the place. There's no traction anymore. If you, if you just add 15 seconds a night or, you know, a minute a week and you've got the opportunity to go up as often as you do on the cruise ships and do multiple shows and, you know, sometimes multiple shows a night, of course, and, and get those jokes tight. 15 seconds. I'm sure it's the time of the show that you're looking forward to the most each night to see how's this experiment going to go, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's my it's my favorite part of the show. And it'll make you review the tape. I know comics are get exhausted watching themselves, mm-hmm. but I, I think it's really necessary. And when you got that new joke in there, you can't wait to watch the tape. Yeah. And, and I see you what you did wrong or what you did right or where you're going to put that joke next. Right. That excitement behind the new joke. I, th- I think you said it too in your post, but when it's, even when it's getting close, I start feeling my heart beat kick in a little bit more and I, I get better at enunciating things and I slow down to make sure I don't screw it up the first time so I can judge it for what it is. And uh, even if that joke doesn't get the response, it will eventually get, I think it's one of those moments that kind of brings the audience in. So even if you misfire, it was a heightened moment for a second, you know, 15 seconds anyway. There's the worst case scenario. They don't laugh. You were still super focused for a little bit and you learned that, Hey, you need to rewrite that line and make it work. There's nothing, nothing, yeah, or nothing. Yeah. Good. You know, and, and, uh, 15 seconds a show you're doing as, as many shows as I am, even if to, even 15 seconds a day out here means you got a new hour at the end of the year, close to it. Right. You know, so you can, you can, you can do that. Just trying one or two new lines a night and every new line isn't going to stick around. But if you don't try any new lines, you're not going to get any new lines. Right. Right. You know, I, I, I was out at a, at a local club last night and I saw Andy Huggins there hanging out, do the open mic after and Andy's been doing comedy for 40 plus years and he's got new jokes written on a piece of paper that he's going up to do, you know, never stop, never stop writing. Yeah, the writing is the key to everything. And I think the comics who don't look forward to it and don't like the process of writing, it's going to be a really tough road. Uh, it won't even be an enjoyable road once they get an hour because they'll just be repeating things over and over again. It's the, the process for me is, is the most exciting part of it. You kind of went into some detail about preparing for your dry bar special. Um, I would love to get into kind of breaking down what you said in that post because we're like in a lot of ways as far as the way I, I approach tapings or if I'm going to put a new demo together or, or do a TV taping or whatever. And I did a dry bar as well. And I spent some time getting ready for it. So I'll kind of chime in with some things that I did alongside yours. But once you found out you had the opportunity to do the dry bar special, how many months or weeks was, were you out from that opportunity? And then tell us about how you started prepping for it. Well, it was interesting. And initially they, they approached me and I considered it and I told them that I, I wasn't available uh, right now, but I was thinking about it. And then dry bar blew up. So I had about two years to, in the back of my head to think about what I might do for dry bar back when they were taping 40 minute specials. So I already had that sort of outline laid out in the back of my head that if I do this, I know what I'm going to do. And that was about that was sort of bouncing around in my head for about two years before I actually uh, recontacted them and said, Hey, I I do want to do this now. And when they booked me, I had about five months out where I knew I was going to do this. I had a date and I set up a schedule for myself on how I wanted to prepare in that five months. You know, and it was a, you know, in the first month it was just deciding which of my material I wanted to do. And in the second month, it was deciding which order I wanted to do it. And then the third month would have been running that set out loud a bit and listening to to it for no audience, correcting it for, for grammar and spelling and watching what words I, I don't say clear enough, things like that. So by the time I was in the last two months before the taping, when I had the opportunity at certain gigs, I could run this set or the first 30 minutes of this set or use it as the first 40 of an hour. Mm-hmm. That was my initial plan. And then about two months before, right when I was at the running the set stage, I, in some shows, I get an email saying that they have cut it from 40 minutes to 25 minutes. And at that point I was thrilled because I had about 10 or 15 minutes of bits 
that I thought were problems that needed work. And I just got rid of those. <laughs> and then I played with the 25 that I was happy with. So it was, the, it was the greatest thing that could have happened. I think every special needs to be taped where I tell you, Rick, you're, you're going to be doing an hour. And then about three weeks before the taping, I say, hey, man, it's just 20 minutes. Right. <laughs> you know, and then, and then you could be like, well, okay, well, this is going to be great. Yeah, it takes a lot of pressure off. And you're like, oh, let's just get rid of the stuff that's not quite there yet and focus on what's killing, right? I think making a schedule, when you have a shoot date, you, you schedule out what you're going to do every single day to prepare for it. Even if today's the day that you don't think about it at all, that should be on your calendar. Mm-hmm. Every day I had something that I was going to do towards the dry bar special. And that's on my little to-do list. You know, every day I make a little to-do list and I check off boxes and I had something that I needed to do towards dry bar, whether it was run the set or return emails or pick out what clothes I want to wear. It was all every day I had a dry bar task. And I think, I think when guys get, uh, when they have shows coming up that they feel like are important or you're doing a taping, I think a lot of them are a little lazy about it, which is so funny to me. You think that's just because, and trust me, I love comics and and I love the creative types, but there are a good chunk of people that are performers or musicians or comics because they they can't work in a structured environment day to day. It's not part of their go-to. Their their brain doesn't work that way. And they're, they're kind of deadline driven. They're not going to get their best work by not preparing the way that you did, or maybe I did or some other folks. But it's just they're so used to a system of not having a system that it comes down to crunch time. They sweat it out. I've been at tapings where you see people. I see people in the back rewriting jokes, you know, that should have been polished a month earlier. <laughs> and they're sitting there going, "Oh man, I'm trying to get my five minutes together for tonight." I'm like, "For tonight?" <laughs> you know, it just yep. drives me nuts. But do you think it's just part of our cre- uh, the creative nature of the group as a whole? They, they've never had that structure, so that it's hard for them to implement one. Yeah, yeah, I think the biggest curse in the world is is exceptional talent. If you go on stage as a young person and you're exceptionally talented, it's probably going to be very exciting for the audience. And if that works well, you just keep doing that. And if if you're not very talented, you go on stage and it's not fun for the audience and it's not fun for you and that's when you learn how to work. That's when you start really setting up your set and, and looking for advice and implementing the advice. And when you're really talented, you just sort of, well, oh, that guy's funny. He'll be fine. Never learns how to work. And then as, as you get further in this business, as you know, well, it gets more and more difficult. You're doing more and more time. You're carrying the show. Sometimes you're the only act on the show. Right. And that does take work. You can't just talent your way through a week on a cruise ship. You're, you will get sent home after the second show. Yeah. Yeah. You need to put work in to get through this gig that I'm going to tomorrow morning. And if you don't know how to work, you're not going to be able to do it. You know, right. but I think you don't need necessarily, if you're extraordinarily talented, I think you don't necessarily need to put work in to get offered this gig. I think you could talent your way into having a great 15 minute showcase set that somebody will say, you're really funny. I'm going to book you on a cruise ship and you're going to show up and you're going to realize at a, at a minimum, you need 90 minutes broken into various different shows. And you can't do that 15 minute showcase set. Maybe you'll get to do it twice on the run, but you have eight shows on this run that you can't do this 15 minute gem that got you hired, you know? Right. Yeah. Tell me about your setup. You're doing the jokes and the index cards. Uh, the index card thing was something that a buddy of mine, Al Ernst, who's a wonderful comic, who was on cruise ships when I got there. One of the guys that taught me how to do this cruise ship gig. When I got on the ships, this was the gig. You had to do a 25-minute squeaky clean set. And then you had another 30-minute set that was a completely different set of material. So it's two completely different shows that you would do on ships. And that was the whole gig. And that's the gig that Al Ernst taught me to do. And he said uh, to me, he goes, when you're breaking up your set, because up until that time, I only had to do my best stuff every night. Right. Go on stage, play the hits, every gig. That's all I had to do. I never had to do that second show without any of my best stuff or with only half of my best stuff in it because I split it up 
And Al said, get a three by five card, get one color for clean jokes that you think have to be in a clean show and get another color for jokes that aren't clean that can't be in a clean show. And then get a third color for jokes that you think will fit on either show. And he goes on the front, write the, write the bit out word for word. Uh, on the back, write out how long it takes you to do it and any other notes that you have about this bit. If it needs to go with another bit, write that on the back. And then start taping those index cards to the wall until you have a 25-minute run over here and a 30-minute run over here. And if you're deciding on whether or not to put a joke in the late show or the PG show, if it's in between, make that clean show as strong as possible because that's what's going to make you stand out. Most comics put their strongest stuff in the late show because there's going to be a bigger crowd there. That's how it was back then. Mm-hmm. And he taught me that note card thing. And it was such a great exercise as a, as a comic to write out. And some note cards, as soon as I wrote out the bit and wrote out how long it was, I, I tore it up and put it in the trash. And I thought, you know right. what? It, this note card is just this one laugh and it is not worth it. <laughs> Putting it on a card made me realize it wasn't worth it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it was something that I was saying to connect one joke to the next. And when I put it out by itself, I thought there's, there's no place for this. It goes in the garbage. And then a couple years later, I'll get to it real quick. A couple years later, they changed our gig where they said, Hey guys, you're going to do instead of two different shows, we're going to have you do five different shows every cruise. Now, if you don't have five different shows, we'd like you to have three different shows. So you repeat two of the shows twice in your five performances, and then you have one performance of a third show. So everybody's trying to come up with a third set of material. And Al and I were working together, and Al said, Tommy, you know where we're headed. We're going to need five different 30-minute shows to do this gig. And I said, I'll, I'll race you. Right. <laughs> and Al and I spent the next year and a half trying to come up with five different shows that we thought could stand alone. And, and using his note card technique really helped me out with that a lot. And it's something you know, every comic should do. And I know that there's a way to do this stuff on computers. Now I'm really a person that handwrites things. And if I handwrite it, it's in my memory. If I type it into my computer, for some reason, it's not. Yeah. I know what you mean. It's, it's, it's more of a visual hand, eye coordination, muscle memory kind of, kind of thing when you write it out for sure. Uh, you're talking about doing all the different sets on the cruise ships. And I, when I did, I did uh, Disney and I did Norwegian I always loved those weeks, those two, I would do two week back to backs to kind of fill in for somebody that was doing it full time so they could take their vacation. But, um, I love just the challenge of looking at all your material and going, okay, I need five strong openers, five strong closers. The middle can't be junk either, but I've got to space stuff out. You know, when you started evolving into that five instead of two half hours, uh, did you kind of set some of the extra half hours up with some of material you already had and then kind of started filling it in the middle or what was your process? Oh, for sure. Yeah. My opening jokes and closing jokes are all, all jokes that were in the original two shows probably still. Um, so yeah, of course, of course, you know, you use the stuff that, you know, you don't want to go up and do a whole 30 of just leftovers, you know, you need a, you need something something fresh in that meal. (laughs) Right. You know, none of, none of, none of this is exaggerated. This is really, how long it takes me to edit a joke. I, I wrote a joke about, oh, maybe 19 years ago about um, my wife and I watching, watching television and the, uh, an old Marilyn Monroe movie comes on and she's singing the song, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. And my wife leans over to me and says, yeah, this is my favorite song. And Christmas is coming up and I could take a hint. So I bought her the soundtrack. That's the joke. <laughs> right. That's the joke. And I did it like that, just like I did for you for about five years. Now with my schedule, five years, you know, and say that joke was in maybe half of the performances. That's, that's a thousand times. I did that joke horribly wrong because there's way too much words before that but way too many words before that punchline. Mm-hmm. And I'm listening 
to an audio tape of my show from the night before, and I listen to this joke that works every time that I'm very comfortable with, and I realize I have been doing this joke wrong. And I started doing it. Uh, I started saying, my wife and I are watching an old movie. They sing the song Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. My wife whispers in my ear, this is my favorite song. Christmas is coming up. So I bought her the soundtrack. I took out the words, I can take a hint. Wasn't necessary. Bought her the soundtrack. That got a great laugh. And I did it like that for another probably four or five years. And then a movie comes out where this song is in it again. And I'm going, oh, that's great. Because now I can just say, we're watching the movie Burlesque. And they sing the song, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. So I re-examined the joke because I, I, changed, I changed it to a, to a modern movie. And when I re-examined the joke, I realized I don't have to say Christmas is coming up either. Yeah. We're watching the movie Burlesque. They sing the song, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. My wife whispers in my ear, this is my favorite song. So I bought her the soundtrack. I did that joke wrong 2,000 times before <laughs> I got to where I am now. Right. That's how long it took me to edit that joke. And the reason why was because it was working. It was a right. good laugh. I looked away from it because I thought, well, that's, that's not the one that needs work. Right. And that reminds me of, uh, and that's a great example. Uh, Rodney Dangerfield said he would always take one word out every night until the joke didn't work. Then he put that last word back in. And that's the version he would keep. Oh, yeah. You can over edit. You can be trimming fat and, and trim some meat. And when you when you get to that point, that's how you know that you're getting there. Yeah. You and know, just, and then and then you put one word back and then put it put a word in that's got fewer syllables in it. You know, when you're breaking it down to the syllable, you know, you're really building a joke. Yeah. Yeah. And you, we know where you're going to breathe and be able to take a breath at the end of the punchline. So it's a natural spot for the audience to react. All those things, all those little nuances in the craft of comedy is what that's kind of what gets me excited to do the next show, just to see what what changed and how I can make it better. Uh, not, not only for the audience, but for me. And a shorter joke means I can get another joke in more last. Good for everybody. Oh, yeah. One of the things that I learned listening to your podcast yesterday, preparing for this, was uh, I, didn't, I never thought about it, but you've used the term a couple times about uh, creating tension before the punchline mm -hmm. uh, and creating more tension so the punchline will hit harder. And uh, it made me examine some of my bits, and I thought that was a, such an – I never thought about it that way. I never thought about a, a setup as creating tension, but that's that's certainly and the laugh is being a release. I've never thought about it in those terms, and uh, when you think about that, it certainly helps you edit. Yeah, edit and, your bits as well. And sometimes those things come after the fact. Like a a joke will work for a while, like you were saying, and then it stops working. And I realized that I didn't pause long enough to create tension or to create an expectation from the audience. I have have a joke where my son. Uh, we're brushing our teeth. He looks in the mirror and realizes something. I say, what's the matter, buddy? He said, Papa, I just noticed me and you, we kind of look alike. I'm like, yeah, what do you think <laughs> about that? He goes, what are you going to do? You know, it, <laughs> it gets a good laugh because it's, you know, self-deprecating. It's a kid saying of course, something funny. Of course. But it, yeah. I, I got to the point where I wasn't giving it enough pause between what do you think about that? And giving him a chance to think of something. And then he would say, what are you going to do? And, and then it's it's three or four times bigger of a laugh because there's that tension of what's the kid going to say? And they're all expecting him to say something like, hey, that's cool or whatever. But just that timing of it, I had gotten in a habit of I knew there was going to be a laugh there. So I wasn't giving it enough time and it stopped working as well. So that and it's exactly what it is. It's, it's like stretching rubber band. And then the farther you stretch it out, the more it stings when it pops. And that's that's what a good joke should do, I think. Sure. I heard it. I heard another good analogy for that when you're pulling into a, a perpendicular parking space and there's other cars on either side. You you turn a little to the right before you pull it left so you can go in going straight. Mm -hmm. And I think creating that tension is is turning that little bit to the right. You know, you're setting up how, how, how you're going to finish this. Uh, but I, you said something very important. You, you, you use silence to create that tension. You pause. Right. You needed to pause longer, and uh, it's such an important tool when you're editing. Some people have words as it, during their pause before they get to the punchline instead of where it could have been silence. Whenever you can place a word with silence, get the same result. That's pretty strong uh, comedy editing, I think.
Yeah, and I do that. Like, I I think we were we were getting towards my more about my prep for dry bar. I really use silence because I really run my my sets out loud in front of nobody in my house alone, and I I say them out loud for a couple reasons to make sure that all the words are understandable, and to make sure that I'm not saying any unnecessary words because you do that uh, on stage sometimes and. You don't correct yourself the next show. Those unnecessary words just stay in there. But when I'm off stage, if I say it wrong out loud, I will say it again the right way mm-hmm. over and over to make sure that I don't say it wrong again. And usually when I say it wrong, it's because I put in a word where I could have just been quiet. <laughs> yeah. You know, for a yeah. moment in between thoughts. Yeah, silence is one of those things, definitely for me as a younger comic, I. Like there'd be an hour go by and I wouldn't take a drink of water because I thought the crowd would get up and walk out if I gave them five seconds to do something <laughs> different. You know, like I was such a uh, insecure. I mean, it's all it was is I was I was not sure. secure enough that I had something to follow drinking water that was going to be better than that that they would stick around for. <laughs> <laughs> On the cruise ship, they do walk out when you take a sip of water. By the way, so. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but most gigs they don't. That's funny. I wanted to hit one more thing real quick. Um, because we were talking about logging on back to AOL and those things, and they had those uh, chat rooms or whatever they called them, or groups or what have you. But, yeah, one of the first things that I connected with you with over the way back then was you had just got a gig where you were opening for share, and you thought, man, this is kind of a unique experience. I'll kind of share it, and you're blogging about it. That share gig was a, was a, was a unique thing, and I got, I got very lucky. I was filling in for one night and uh, for Cindy Lauper, who was opening for Cher. And Cher had used comedians in the past, and Cindy was hurt, and, and Cher knew that it was an easy fill-in. And they called me, and I, I was just supposed to do one show, and that show went so well that over three years, I got to do a 125 concerts opening for Cher. That, that shows you were ready for an opportunity, made the most of it, and then usually that's when great things happen. Not when you plan how things are going to happen, but just by being ready for them. Yeah. You get a lot of opportunities. And and when you're not ready for one, that makes you start to get ready for the next ones, you know, and and get ready. And whenever I hear that a friend has it, you probably do this too. When you hear about a friend that has a unique gig, you think to yourself, well, what would I do in that situation? Mm -hmm. And you start to prepare yourself for, when when you get put on that unique gig, you know, so there's no, there's no opportunity that you're not ready for. Um, yeah, I was certainly, I was ready for this opening for, for share. And it was, uh, you know, I ended up when I was on the tour doing 40 minutes in front of her. And that first night was just, they asked me to do 30 or 35. I think it was, they asked me to do 30 the first night and then 35, the second concert I did with her. And then after that, they said, do you have 40? And I go, yeah, you're going to increase it you know, every night. They go, no, but 40 <laughs> is what we want you to do. And I go, all right, well, I can, I, can do, I can do 40. But I think the important thing that needs to be on your podcast is I got this gig because the Clear Channel promoters knew who I was. And they knew who I was because a couple years before, Wayne Brady was doing a tour. And Wayne's a guy that I sort of knew from the San Francisco days. I didn't know him well, but I knew him doing a tour where he does uh, improvisation. He's doing it in 1500 seat theaters and he invite it's PG rated. So he invites whole families out to see this tour. That's what Wayne was doing everywhere that Wayne went. Wayne wanted a local comic to open for him. He had to be squeaky clean. There's kids in the audience. He had to do 15 minutes and it paid a hundred dollars. And if you're just starting comedy, that sounds like a wonderful opportunity but if you're if you're a professional, a lot of the people that got the phone call said, "Well, that is not enough money for that." I was about the fifth person they called, and four comics had turned it down. And I said, "You know what? I know Wayne, and it's a Thursday night. I'm available. I can drive there. I would love to do this. I don't care what it pays. Let's do it." And I got there, and I did this gig that five other comics turned down that paid a hundred bucks, and it went well, and it was a fun night. And I was able to do 15 minutes clean. That's what they wanted. And two years later, that $100 night turned into, you know, a couple million dollars over three years. Right. Isn't that interesting? And, 
I think it's important for comedians to know that, that, uh, you know, sometimes you, you're over negotiating yourself out of a, a single night, but you never know which night it's going to turn into, you know, you being in billboard magazine as the comic that's been seen live by more people than anybody else on the planet, which is what I got in the year 2004 because of this share tour. That's incredible. Um, oh, I don't say no to the Wayne Brady gig. If you're, <laughs> right. if you're off that night, just, just get in your car, Rick, and go do your 10 minutes and take your $100, all right? Because it's going to work out for you, Thinking about especially how if I... you're overqualified for it. Especially <laughs> yeah. if you're overqualified for it, it's going to work out for you. Yeah, that's interesting, you know, and, and I think I think I would have done the same thing you did in that, that circumstance. I'm trying to think back now if to see if I did turn that down. I don't. I don't think I had the opportunity. They probably. I didn't even. I didn't even think of that. But I, you would have been one of the guys that they called for sure to do this because that's your reputation in, in comedy. Oh yeah, if there's kids in the audience. Rick can do it. No problem. Right. That's but crazy. you might have said that's not enough money. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. Know? If it's close enough, I would love those opportunities. I think are great, and I, and I do some things like that around here where I don't even ask how much it is. If it's the opportunity I want to do, and I'm open. And I can get better or I can learn something, then it's I'm getting paid something to go learn how to be better. So that's somebody else is in, yeah. investing in my career. I, you can't, you know, be a Jiffy Lube mechanic and have somebody from Firestone pick you up for one night to pay 75 bucks to teach you how to change the oil different or something. You know, we're getting paid yeah. on the job. So why not? Yeah, you know, and I got to I got to open for the Righteous Brothers as well back then off of this Wayne Brady gig. So it turned into a, a lot. Now tell me about you know, that first the first night where you're filling in for Cindy Lauper because I assume something happened the, the day before or a couple of days before and this was a quick moving thing and the audience may not have even known who was Yeah, Cindy the fell off night. the stage in Oklahoma City and sprained her ankle. She was singing and she literally looked up in the lights and stepped off the front of the stage and sprained oh. her ankle. And because uh you know, she's, she's older. When we get older, we don't just recover from a sprained ankle. She needed to elevate it for about three days. And the wonderful part about Cher and Lindsay Scott and Roger Davies are, are Cher's managers and they're legendary. And the wonderful part about them along with Cher is that they have done so many live shows together that they knew immediately if they were going to have a last minute fill in that it was going to be a stand up comic. And they've used Dom Herrera, they've used um, um, Jeff Foxworthy, all these people have opened for share. And uh, I, it was in Dallas and I was in Houston and they called me at about 10 in the morning in the morning and they said, can you go to Dallas tonight? And I knew it was the Clear Channel concert promoter guys. And I said, yeah, you know, but I have a, I had a bar show that I think paid 200 bucks. I said, I'm going to, should I get somebody to cover this bar show or is it, they go, yeah, oh, we'll, we'll guarantee you a lot more money than that. Right. And I, but we can't tell you what you're doing. I said, okay. Huh. So I go to the airport, it's a 45 minute flight. I know that they're going to pick up my expenses and I'm, I'll probably get paid a thousand bucks just for showing up for this. And, uh, I, I called my wife and told her I was leaving town for the night and she got online and said, well, you're either opening for, for share or I forget who it was. There was some, some young rock and roll dishwalla, maybe some young rock and roll band. Uh-huh. And I said, well, I'm probably not opening for dishwalla. She <laughs> goes, well, I want to come. And I go, okay, I'll set it up. So I get, I get there at about pretty early in the day, maybe about one o'clock and I'm hanging out backstage while they're setting up this big concert and nobody's really talking to me. They just sort of put me in a chair. And then finally, Lindsay Scott came over and said, Hey, we, we're not sure if we're going to use you yet, but we, it's either you or no opening act. I put my set together and my wife made it in about 30 minutes before I went on stage, about an hour before they told me I was definitely going on. I, I introduced myself off stage in the microphone because the, the stage manager, Malcolm asked me if, uh, if he want, if I wanted him to do it or if I wanted to do it. And I said, um, I'll do it. And I said, what, what do I say? He said, just say, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your opening act, Tommy Drake. So I said that into a microphone. I, I walked out on stage and I did my first joke and I got nothing. And I did my second joke and I got nothing. And in the middle of my third joke, I started hearing the laugh 
for my first joke. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, I need to slow way down. Uh, And uh, in that first 10 minutes, I was just sort of dancing around the rhythm of this this room. But it was a really good room. There were about 12,000, maybe 13,000 people in the concert. And uh, I slowed down. And when I slowed down about 10 minutes in and caught my stride, it was really fun performing for 12,000 people. And I, I took my time and I was getting these huge uh, responses to everything. And then I could, I could see my wife in about the eighth row and she's just kind of looking around laughing. She can't believe that I'm there opening for Cher. And I glanced down at her one time on stage and I'm kind of giggling to myself. This is really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, get off stage, go sit with my wife to watch the concert. And two songs into the concert, they came and got me and pulled me backstage. I left my wife out there. And I didn't know what, what they were going to say, but in my head, I thought this went pretty well. And they asked me if I could come tomorrow and open for him in Austin. And I said, uh, I said, absolutely. And I said, well, we haven't, we haven't talked about money yet. <laughs> and they right. said, oh yeah, we're going to, we're going to take care of you. And they ended up paying me, you know, basically a, a few thousand dollars every night, which was always good money for a comic and covering my expenses and covering my wife's expenses. And the second night, I had all day to think about it. So that set that I did open and for share the second night where they asked me to do 35 minutes was a lot stronger because I spent, I used my process that whole day from what I learned the night before. I wrote stuff out and I timed stuff out and I, it was, it was really strong. And then after that, Cindy Lauper was better. So they said, thanks, we'll call you. And I said, I don't, I don't think you'll call me, but this is really cool. Uh-huh. A few months later, they said, we're extending the tour and we want you to be on it as, as the opening act. And that was a contract for 25 shows and about 10 shows into that. They said, we just need you to clear your calendar for the next two years. Wow. And that was, uh, ended up being 125 shows. And, and during the time that you're the guy opening for share, when the, when the concert isn't going on, it, it's really easy to do appearances. And, mm-hmm. you know, I got to be a guest on everybody else's show and I got to, uh, get a lot more money to do corporate shows and, and all those things from the, the share tour. And it was right. really, uh, it, it, I got very, I got very fortunate and I wanted to share it on that news group because I wanted, uh, comics like yourself, the other comics out there to know that if you stick around long enough, you're going to get these opportunities and it's going to be, it's going to be special. Right. And if I remember correctly, you would even describe, what the catering was that evening. <laughs> that right? Yeah. You know, that was a, it, that was a joke. I would end every, <laughs> every online journal by describing what we ate. And that was sort of a joke for, for my road comic friends, because we would talk about these one nighters that were necessary. You had to do them, but they weren't the best. And, and, and you'd always ask, you know, what's the, what's the, what are the accommodations like? What's the show like? Uh, what's the showroom like? And then the, the last question was always, is there any free food right. <laughs> involved in this gig? Is there anything? Do they have a sandwich shop? What's what's the deal? So I was I wanted the other comics to know that even though I was doing this big time show and I was making a lot of money, I still wanted them to know what the free food was. At the <laughs> gig, you know, uh, awesome. Eat the free food. That's my message for young comics. Eat the free food. And if there's there's a free breakfast at your hotel, put the uh, oatmeal packets in your pocket. Right. Because you're going to need those for lunch at some point. <laughs> yep. That's too, so funny. Too funny, man. Well, I appreciate your time. I know you have, uh, you're jumping off of one boat, getting ready to go on another one. So I'm glad you squeezed this in. And, and again, I guess for anybody listening, if you're on Facebook, W Maxwell has a great, a, a great Facebook group called the Maxwell method of Stand Up, And that's, that's where Tommy posted uh, recent post about getting ready for dry bar and what made me think about having him on. So if you enjoy this kind of advice, there's, there's usually good advice. There's always some, uh, some clickbait type stuff in there. People <laughs> trying to get people to, to oh, for sure. Yeah. But I think you could easily troll through, even if you just search, you know, stuff that Tommy posts and you'll see Tom Dreesen and some other people that are posting some, some decent stuff for noob comics. It's worth checking out. And Adobe does a good job of kind of keeping it in check without it getting out of control. And uh, he, he of- does. And whenever I write anything uh, uh, about that, I think would help other comics, I will post it on that site. Every time I post it on some other places, but I will post it on that site. And I'm, I'm really 
committed actively to helping other comedians. Usually it's, it's guys that are about my level that, that need help adjusting to maybe working on cruise ships or something, but I'm, I'm committed to helping anybody at any level. That's pretty great. So if you reach out to me, I'm going to, I'm going to respond for sure. That's good, man. And I'm, I'm honored that, that you wanted to talk to me about this stuff. And I think your podcast is a really cool tool for anybody that's speaking, but especially for comedians. I appreciate it. And, and thanks again, Tommy. I really do appreciate it. I'm sure people uh, were taking notes and laughing at the same time this episode. Appreciate it. Uh, I, I, I hope so. I hope it makes everybody's show a little bit better and makes them look at their bits differently. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tommy Drake. As I told you, lots of good information there. And I thought a really cool story about how he took that one gig, a $100 gig that everybody turned down because it should pay more than that. And it ended up paying millions of dollars. So, hmm, you never know what gig you turn down and what it can lead to. So when at all possible, when the gig's available and you're available and it's not an issue, take it. See where it leads, especially if you're working with somebody that's further along than you and you get an opportunity to open for somebody like Wayne Brady. Uh, that could always lead to something cool. So great, great story there. Uh, I wish I would have got that gig. That would have been something else. Don't know if I'd been the right opener for Cher, but man, would have been fun trying. Again, thanks to Bo Schuster, Ray Price, for supporting the podcast through Patreon. If you would like to do that, now's a great time to check it out. You can just go to schooloflast.com forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get all the information there. Basically, a small donation per month helps keep the show going. And any donation, $7 a month or more, will get you involved with Club 52, a weekly email that is designed specifically for comedians and speakers to get things going faster. Give you one actionable task you can complete each week. And by the end of the year, you are on fire. You've got it figured out. You've got things streamlined and you've got processes and steps in place that maybe you didn't know could be there to help you get along a little bit quicker. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thanks again for everybody for listening. And uh, thanks to Tommy Drake for that insight and information. Stay safe out there, everybody, and stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit schooloflaps.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay money.